0: The money shows The Africa Business Report. The Africa Business Focus is brought to you by South African Airways. Let's get into it now with Rona Gopaldas, a director and Africa analyst at Signal Risk. Now, Kenyans started voting today to pick a successor to outgoing President Uhuru Kenyatta in what is seen as a key test of stability for one of Africa's healthiest democracies. This week's vote is seen as a key test of stability in a nation regarded as a healthy democracy in a region known for long-serving dictators. Of course, uh, Kenya also going through some of its weak economy, as the rest of the um, continent is as well, and that election uh, looked at as key in terms of consumers in kenya we speak now to Ronak, who's going to be taking us through some of the biggest stories that came out this week on the continent Ronak, welcome to the show
1: thank you very much for having me
0: let's get some of the assessment that you uh, saw in terms of that election that came through today of course we haven't got any numbers coming through as yet but how it's significant and important is this election for kenya
1: yeah, it's a, it's a huge election, probably the, the biggest one on the continent this year. And uh, it's quite unique in many ways, um, because it's the first time since the Daniel Arab Moy era that neither an incumbent president nor a candidate from the Kikuyu community, which is the largest ethnic community in the country, is contending for the presidential position. So, um, you've got a unique situation over here because the, the vice president, William Ruto, is effectively contesting as the outsider and uh, Raila Odinga, who is the former prime minister and the former arch enemy of Uhuru Kenyatta, the current president, is effectively got his backing now. So it's a bit soap opera-esque, uh, which is creating some some interesting dynamics. Um, but I think there are really three things to watch as we wait for the results. So um, ethnicity and, and the youth are the first critical factor. Um, in Kenya, it's very seldom that people deviate away from ethnic lines in their voting. Um, and I think, you know, this time with the Kikuyu vote being up for grabs, that's, uh, that's something to watch quite closely. Both of the candidates are competing for that Mount uh, Kenya region. Um, I think at the moment we place Raila Odinga in the ascendancy there. He's, uh, he's got the backing of Uru Kenyatta. He's, um, he's got a strong Kikuyu woman anti-corruption running mate. Um, and also he's, um, he's, he's assembled uh, an alliance, uh, of 29 parties, which, which covers a lot of the ethnic bases. So that plays into its favour. The other factor, I guess, is that uh, the youth haven't really registered to come out and vote, and, and that again favours Odinga. So uh, that's the first consideration, uh, which plays into Odinga's favour. The second one is the economy, and I think here Ruto probably has more of an advantage. There is a state of disillusionment and dissatisfaction with the status quo. As you mentioned, rising food and fuel prices have affected, uh, you know, the, the, the man on the street. And, and I think Ruto, with his hustler narrative and populist appeal, has tapped into that, that, uh, that disillusionment. So that probably favors him. And then I think the third factor to consider is, uh, the state apparatus. In Kenya, financial, political, economic, and security resources by the state are, are pretty instrumental in, in elections. And I think with Kenyatta's backing, that probably favors Odinga too. So, I think there's no doubt it's going to be a very, very close race and go down to the wire. But uh, at no risk, we think that Odinga has uh, slight momentum and we'll be watching for the results closely.
0: And how important is the selection or whoever comes out of it for uh, the East African region, of course, in terms of the economy and also trade in that particular region?
1: Yeah, critical. I mean, Kenya is obviously the, the largest economy in the region. It's, uh, it's a dynamo of the region. A stable, prosperous uh, Kenya is is important for the rest of the of the economies. If there's any instability, that's obviously going to to have some contagion. So um, I think you know the, this election is, is, is quite critical. We don't envisage any major deviation in, in policy. There's not really much between the two parties, but um, I think the the quicker the political cycle ends, and and uh, the quicker policymakers can go back to concentrating on on many of the economic challenges, uh, the better it is for the entire region.
0: And there was a lot of pomp and ceremony back here in South Africa. U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken uh, starting his Africa tour in South Africa. He held a strategic dialogue with Minister of International Relations and Cooperation Naledi Pando. But after the pomp and ceremony, what would you say was the significance of this particular visit, especially after some seven years, I think, uh, from the U.S.?
1: So the timing is really interesting because it follows hot on the heels of Sergei Lavrov's visit to, to the continent. He's the Russian uh, foreign minister. And, you know, there's a, there's a bit of a subtext over here. Uh, it's not been mentioned explicitly, but around this kind of new Cold War, the U.S. versus China and Russia. And that's kind of featured strongly in the background of conversations. Uh, for me, three things really stood out from, from what I've observed so far. Number one, it was very candid. Um, you know, if you look at the engagements with Naledi Pando and Anthony Blinken, um, they spoke a lot, around a lot of, lot of kind of touchy subjects like US hypocrisy, democracy, paternalism, Russia and Ukraine. And it was quite refreshing to hear that, honestly. I think the, the second thing is that the rhetoric coming out from the US has changed. So if you listen closely, they talk about Africa as a geopolitical force, they talk about partnerships and equality. There's positive framing rather than fear mongering and, and much more constructive language. So the messaging has changed. And then, of course, they unveiled the new Africa strategy, which puts democracy, trade, investment, things like prosper Africa, build back better at the cornerstone. Um, so it's a departure from the Trump era, um, which was kind of neglectful. Um, there's actual engagement happening now in, in U.S.-Africa policy. And I think that's evidenced by things like the U.S.-Africa Business Summit, which we just had. There's a U.S.-Africa Leader Summit coming up in December. So the signs are quite promising, um, but uh, we'll have to watch to see what the execution is like.
0: Well, hopefully those uh, AGOA agreements in terms of the dumping of U.S. chicken in South Africa also gets talked about. The U.S., of course, makes up about 17% of South Africa's export output market. And, uh, of course, uh, we still uh, about to rely to, on the U.S. in terms of transition to low-carbon uh, economies. So uh, they are also promising to help South Africa with that move from fossil fuels, and I'm sure that was also up for discussion. But the expanded BRICS... Um, a relationship in terms of South Africa, Russia and China, what's the likelihood of the implications? We're seeing the U.S. also stepping in now uh, to make sure they have a footprint on the continent. But the likes of China and India have been buying that Russian oil that has been hit uh, by those sanctions. Uh, what's South Africa's play here and, you know, is BRICS as strong as it was before?
1: So it's interesting because there, there are rumors that Argentina is is going to be the next to join and China's pushing quite strongly for this. And, you know, there are two ways of looking at it. One is that this is a tactic by China to expand its, its sphere of influence. Uh, or two, that actually we need a fairer uh, counterweight political and economic architecture to Western dominance. So, you know, China's got the rotating presidency of the BRICS this year. They're saying you know, we're underrepresented as the BRICS and the Global South, given population size and economic muscle. The existing Western bodies don't cater to our interests, so we need an alternative. And I think recent trends have kind of uh, played into that. You know, there's a confidence crisis in traditional institutions, largely on account of the Trump era and and the way that those were undermined. Vaccine apartheid didn't help uh, the West as well. And now the framing around this Russia-Ukraine in terms of this Cold War narrative also is not helpful. So, you know, there is appetite amongst the global south and developing nations for an alternative bloc, but there are a few practical issues. So the first one is that India and China, you know, don't really trust each other. There's a distrust in terms of geopolitics, in terms of military, in terms of technology. So I think India is not going to accept being a junior partner in any kind of arrangement which sees China expand its influence. Second issue is money, Russia, South Africa, Brazil, all struggling. So who's going to fund it? And the third issue is the administrative and diplomatic bureaucracy. So I think the BRICS thing is a longer term, BRICS expansion is a longer term thing. It won't be an immediate counterweight or a silver bullet. um, But the point is to create more options, more leverage, more choice, to move away from Western uh, dependency.
0: I'm wondering if you can get through this Zambia debt story uh, very quickly. Zambia has cancelled, of course, uh, more than 1.6 billion dollars in terms of Chinese loans from the China Export Import Bank and Industrial Commercial Bank of China. Is this a good move on on their part in dealing with some of the debt problems? And does does this you know take away the grip China has on the country?
1: So. I mean, this debt situation has has been what everyone's been watching since 2020 when uh, Zambia became the first pandemic-era African defaulter. So, you know, there's finally progress in this regard because now the the official creditors agreement can unlock an IMF program, which is essential to unleashing liquidity and to restructuring the debt. So, you know, under the G20 Common Framework for, for debt, this is progress. Um, the IMF is happy, the uh, official creditors are happy, the commercial creditors now have some visibility around the public financial management. So, you know, Zambia has been in limbo for a while and it can now kick on and, and move ahead. And I think it reflects the broadly positive trajectory we've seen when Haka India and took over in Zambia, where we've seen fiscal consolidation, investor-friendly policies and, and improvement in, government, in governance. So, Certainly, uh, Zambia, positive news and, and heading in the right direction.
0: All right, dealing with its debt problems is Zambia. That was a complete screening of the continent on our Africa business focus. That was with Ronak Gopaldas, who is the director and Africa analyst at Signal Risk.